Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll be looking today at verses 36 and 37. But before we do, I need to give you a little bit of background. I preached on this last year, John 6, 1 through 15, and I'm sure you all remember that sermon well, right? Last summer? Yeah. Um, Basically, I preached on... The feeding of the multitudes. And Jesus fed 5,000 people, but it was more than 5,000 people. When you include men, women, and children, there were probably 20,000 people there. And he fed them with only two fish and five loaves of bread. He multiplied them. It was an unbelievable miracle, right? In fact, in the text, it says they ate and they were filled. So it wasn't just they were eating little tiny pieces of bread like we do with the Lord's Supper and a little tiny, no, they're getting bigger, but, um, and, and little pieces of fish. They ate until they were full. And not only did they eat until they were full, but there were 12 baskets of bread left over. After feeding 20,000 people. Amazing, right? Well, after feeding the 20,000, what happens? He sends the disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus goes up onto the mountain to pray. And you all know the rest of the story. The disciples get into a storm. Jesus comes down from the mountain. And he goes on to the sea, walking on the sea. He calms the sea, another miracle. He gets into the boat. And then, immediately, it says, the boat was to the other side. Two or three miles, immediately. That's faster than Joe's boat, right? Immediately. So we see all these miracles taking place. And then the people that were fed that day come back the next morning. Not all of them. But a crowd comes back, and they're looking for Jesus. Why are they looking for Jesus? Because they want more bread. And they can't find him, so they finally figure out, hey, let's go across the sea. And so they do. Look at verse 22 of John chapter 6. This is the word of God. And the next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw... There was no other boats there except one that Jesus had entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came, another, there, there came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because of you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? 
Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day day. We have two cats. I've told you this before. Sammy and Ladybug. And Sammy and Ladybug love it in the morning because they get their treats every morning. Denise is faithful at giving them their treats. Uh, You know why she does that? Because before she married me, she was a Lombardi. She was full Italian. Can you believe that? Full Italian. She was. She still is. She still is full Italian. Um, uh, And Italians love to fatten up animals. They just love to do that. That's why we had a 22-pound cat named Buddy. That's why we don't have a 22-pound cat (laughs) named Buddy anymore. So she's working on Sammy now. Sammy. But she feeds them these meat-flavored treats, and they love them, right? Now, what would you think if if Denise took a head of lettuce instead of the treats and threw it on the ground right in between the cats? What do you think they'd do? They would probably look at her and think she had lost it, right? They would probably look at her and say, Are you crazy? Don't you know what we are? We're cats! We're not rabbits. We're cats. We're carnivores. That's our nature. We eat meat. We don't eat lettuce. You know what? They'd probably die if you put Brussels sprouts in front of them. You know what? I would probably die too. You can't do anything to Brussels sprouts to make them taste good. Don't don't tell me. You, You just can't. They're terrible. That's where we find ourselves this morning. In verse 36, we find ourselves with a group that does not believe in Jesus. Look look at verse 36 again. Let me read it. It says this. 
Well, let me read 35 first. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Wow. What does it mean that they had seen him? You know what it meant? They had truly seen him. They were there that day when 20,000 people were fed. They were part of that crowd. They were filled with two fish and five loaves. They were filled to the gills. To the gills. Um, They didn't go away hungry. They saw this miracle of Jesus. They saw the 12 baskets of bread that were left over. And then in verse 2 of chapter 6, it says not only did they see this, but they also saw Jesus heal people. So they saw this. They saw the feeding. They saw Jesus heal people. And they still did not believe. You know, it kind of reminds me, turn, turn to the left to Luke Chapter 16, keep your finger in John 6. Um, Luke 16 is the story of Abraham, the rich man, and Lazarus. And the rich man is in hell, Hades, and Lazarus is in heaven with Abraham, right? And the rich man is being tormented because he's in hell. So he asks Abraham, send my servant, who was his former servant, send my servant Lazarus over to me, dip his finger in water so he can relieve me because he was in such torment, right? And Abraham says, can't do that. He can't cross the chasm, okay? So then what he says is this. He says, then send Lazarus to my brothers who are alive now. Send them, send him to warn them about hell. To warn them that they don't want to be here. That they don't want to be here. And you know what Abraham, how he replied? Listen, listen to this. Verse 29 of chapter 16, it says this, Luke 16. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if somebody rises from the dead. Wow. Can you believe that? If they saw somebody walk out of the grave and come up to them and say, you don't want to go to hell, they're not going to believe that? Why? Why? Because they're spiritually dead, right? They're spiritually dead, just like all of us were at one time. We are all born in a spiritually dead condition. Another way of saying it is that we are totally depraved or total inability. That means that all who are born in sin are totally unable to save themselves. All sinners, because of their fallen nature, listen to this, would rather choose sin than choose Christ. Would always choose a religion of works 
over the gospel of grace, will always seek to glorify self instead of glorify God. Why? Because of the sinful nature that we're born with. These people in verse 36 needed a miracle. They needed their nature change, just like my cats. They needed a nature change, and which would only happen through God's power. His power to elect and his power to regenerate. Um, where do we find this teaching? Where do we find this teaching? Well, David has been preaching about this for like the past month. You know, he preached through Romans 1.18 through 3.21. And the summary of that, those three chapters, is in 3.21. It says this, for all have sinned. And what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It summarizes the whole world under sin. And it also says this in Romans. Um, he he, he uh, taught on this too. Uh, Romans 3. I have to find this with my tabs. Romans 3.10 says this. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Mark. I know non-Christians, and I know they do good things. There are a lot of non-Christians that do good things. But that's not what it's talking about. It's doing good Godward. No non-Christian does anything Godward because everything they do is tainted with sin because they're born totally depraved, like we all once were. Like we all once were. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, talks about our total depravity. One writer says this about total depravity. If you realize that the Bible is completely accurate and serious when it says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, that you cannot come to Christ apart from a miracle, that, you, that the working of which is entirely in the sovereign choice of God, then you find yourself, if you really believe that, then you find yourself close to despair. For how can you be saved if it is neither in your nature nor power to trust in God and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? You cannot. There is no hope. No hope unless God intervenes in spite of yourself and your desires to save you by pure grace. You all remember the story in John chapter 11 where um, Lazarus dies and Jesus goes to Lazarus and it's on the fourth day. He's been dead four days. He's in the grave. Jesus shows up. He intended to show up late. He shows up, he stands in front of the grave, and he tells Martha that he's going to remove the stone, right? He's going to have somebody remove the stone. And Martha says, no, 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 don't do that, right? And she uses the King James Version here. She says, he's been four days dead. He will stinketh, right? What does Jesus do? He has the stone removed. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And I am convinced totally that if he wouldn't have said, Lazarus, come forth, 
If he would have just said, come forth, all the graves on the earth would have been emptied that day. But he said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came back from the dead. And you know, every one of you was dead like Lazarus, except you were spiritually dead. And the only way for you to wake up from that deadness is for Jesus to call you from that dead estate and give you spiritual life. And all of that began in eternity past. And that leads us to verse 37. Look at verse 37 with me. John 6. Thirty-seven says this: All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, when you look at thirty-seven, you need to look at it from two perspectives. You need to first of all look at the first part of it from the perspective of God's sovereignty. That God is sovereign in whom he elects, okay? That's the first part of the verse. Second part of the verse is talking about man's responsibility, okay? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Um, Another way of looking at it is like going to a play. When you go to a play, you see everything that happens on stage, right? You see everything that happens on stage. You don't see what's going on behind the stage, You don't see what's going on behind the stage. So if somebody's flying across the stage, you know, as Superman, you know, you're going, wow, that's pretty cool. Because you can't see the wires that's holding him up because they're painted black and there's a black background, right? So he's flying across the stage and you're going, wow, that is so cool, right? And then you get a tour behind the stage and you see these big guys holding wires so that Superman can fly, right? He could not fly, he could not fly unless there were guys behind the stage holding him up. And we cannot come to Christ until God does a work behind the stage. And what is that work? Look at Ephesians 1.4 with me. Turn to Ephesians 1.4. It says this, Just as he, that's God the Father, and remember what we're talking about, John 6, 37, just as he, God the Father, chose us, the believers, elect, in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to what? The kind intention of his will, not our will. What this verse is saying is that God set a plan in motion before the foundation of the earth to save his people. Listen to what Matthew 121 says. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say all people. It says his people from their sins. This indicates that there is a certain number of people that God the Father sent to Christ that would be saved. 
And that number was chosen before time began. And since we are given to Christ, listen to this, and since we are given to Christ before the foundation of the earth, then it had nothing to do with us because we weren't even born yet. We hadn't done anything good or evil. That's what Romans 9 says, too. Um, It was all done by grace in eternity past. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Mark. What about foreknowledge? What about God knowing what we're going to decide in the future and then deciding for us because we decided for him? Have you ever heard that before? Foreknowledge. That isn't what foreknowledge means. It's him foreknowing us, him loving us before the foundation of the earth. Foreknowledge isn't that he looks forward to our decision. Because guess what? Every decision that would be made by a non-Christian is always against God and for sin until God changes the heart. But somebody might think this, if you're here, and you're not a believer, you might be thinking, well then, Mark, how do I know? You know, how do I know if I'm elect? You know, should I just give up? How do I know? How do I know? Now, this reveals an intellectual struggle that we all have. And and it's between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, right? God is sovereign in all this. He does elect his people. But man is responsible also. It's, It's right here in verse 37. You see them both, right? In fact, let me show you. It's here. Let me show you. In verse 37, it says, All that the Father give me will come to me. That's God's sovereignty. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's man's responsibility, to believe the gospel, right? To come to Christ. Turn two pages over. Look at John 5, verse 39. Look at what it says. It says, you search the scriptures. This is Jesus speaking to a group of Jews, leaders, in, in the Jewish leaders. And it says this, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. It's in these that testify about me. And you were what? Unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You see what he's saying there? He's saying you're responsible. You're responsible for your decision. Um, Turn with me real quickly to Acts 13. Acts 13. This is one of the clearest texts in the New Testament, but they're all over the place. So it's not just in John. It's not just in Acts. Um, But this is a very clear one. Uh, This is Jesus speaking to a crowd of Jews and Gentiles. I mean, not Jesus, Paul, speaking to a group of Jews and Gentiles. And listen to what it says, verse 44, Acts 13. It says, the next day, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiated it, and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, 
behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. What is he saying there? He's saying you're responsible, and you are rejecting the gospel. And so now we're turning to the Gentiles. And so he does. And look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. That's the same wording as Ephesians 1.4. That as many as were appointed to eternal life. When were they appointed? Before the foundation of the earth believed. So you see here God's sovereignty. And you also see man's responsibility when the Jews reject Christ. So why is this verse here? Why is John 6.37 here? Is it, is it given to make you struggle? Is it given to produce fear and anxiety? No. It is given to give us comfort. It's given to give us peace and joy. You know, the, this verse does not tell you, if you're not a believer, it doesn't tell you to try to find out if you're elect or not. It doesn't, does it? What it tells you, instead, it commands you to come to Christ and believe the gospel. To come to Christ and believe the gospel. So my exhortation to you is come so that you can take part in God's irrevocable promise. Now let's look back, since we're talking about man's responsibility, look at 37b, and it says, And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Listen to what one writer says about this. Who, according to this text, may come to Jesus? The answer is anyone. How may they come? The answer is in any way. When may they come? When may they come? The answer is at any time. How can this be more universal? The first half of verse 37 is written in the abstract. All that the Father give me will come to me. This is part of Christ's sentence that deals with election. It is plural, designating a great number. It is abstract, for we do not know who those are who are called by God. The second half of the verse is singular in number and personal. It says, him. It is Jesus' way of saying, whoever you may be and however and whenever you may come. Even if you're a great sinner, you may come. The Bible didn't call the righteous. The Bible called sinners to repentance. What is your sin? Is it murder? Is it adultery? Is it theft? Is it homosexuality? It doesn't matter because if you come to Jesus and believe the gospel, you will be received. And speaking of irrevocable, Look back at the first part. All that the Father give me will come to me. Do you hear that? It's a promise. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come. There will be no one who fails to come. Every one of his elect will be saved. That's what it's saying. Look at, look at uh, verse 39 right here. 
It says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise them up on the last day. Jesus is going to save all of his elect. Um, He will not fail. Uh, Listen to what one author says about this. He says, if Jesus Christ died, not knowing if men would believe in him or not, and without the guarantee by God that they would believe, then it's entirely possible that nobody would have believed and that his death would have been for nothing. He would have died, but nobody would have been saved. You can't have it both ways. Thus, God either determines who will be saved and sees to it that they are saved, or there is at least the possibility that nobody will believe in Jesus. And if there is a possibility that nobody, nobody will believe, or even that some who God had chosen to give to Jesus will not believe, then John 6.37 is not true and should not be in the Bible. So why is this so important? I think it is so important because it tells each one of us who are his how much God loves you. How much grace that you have been given. How much that we don't deserve any of this. You know, these two verses, verse 36 and 37, remind me of D-Day. I know that's a little strange, but it reminds me of D-Day. God taking people who were held captive in sin and making a plan to free them, right? That's what D-Day was all about. That's what D-Day was all about. The leaders of the free world, and we just celebrated it, what, two months ago? The leaders of the free world together made a plan to save Europe, actually to save the whole world from tyranny. And this had to be an overpowering plan because the German army held in their clutches all of us, all of Europe, Nobody could escape their power unless this was an overpowering, overwhelming plan. The plan was made way before June 6, 1943, and the plan was to bring thousands upon thousands of soldiers to England to cross the English Channel on one day. Think about the planning that went into this. In fact, I read an article of all the military hardware that crossed the English Channel on that day. It was mind-boggling. Millions of guns, thousands of tanks, jeeps, cannons, amphibious vehicles, and planes were produced to cross the English Channel on one day to destroy the enemy. And on that one day, thousands of men gave their lives so that strangers could go free. You know, when you think about that, when you think about D-Day, and you think of all the planning that went into it and that it worked, that's amazing, right? That it worked. It it all pales in insignificance compared to the plan of redemption that began 
before the foundation of the world. Just think about this plan was enacted before it, it was not enacted at the incarnation. Just think how much God loves you in controlling all of history to make this plan and then to enact it and to bring it to fruition. God had to call, call Abraham from Ur. He had to have a miracle child at the age of 100. Isaac had to go back to Mesopotamia to find his bride, Rebekah. Isaac chose Jacob over Esau. Rahab the harlot was saved from Jericho and had a child who was in the line of Christ. King David committed murder and adultery with Bathsheba and as a consequence lost their first child. But God was still in control because their second child was Solomon who reigned on the throne, and who later, of course, Jesus reigned on the throne. And when Herod tried to kill Jesus, God sent angels to protect him and to send him to Egypt. God the Father controlled all of history, not just biblical history, but all of history, so that your redemption would be secured. None of his elect would be lost. And on that final day, when the crowds were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate said to Jesus, do you know, I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you. You know what Jesus said to him? You have no authority over me unless it's been given to you from above. You see what he was saying? God is, God my Father is in control of all of history. He's in control of the plan of redemption down to the very last detail so none of his elect will be lost. No one, no one on this earth could thwart his plan or guess what? God is not God. In closing, listen to what one author says. We, we have to come back to the great biblical principle that God is not only the author of salvation in the sense of being the one in whom the plan flows, but also the author in the sense that like any good author, he finishes the story. Thus, God brings the plan of salvation to its perfect conclusion by irresistibly drawing men women, and children to himself. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher of our faith. Moreover, this is precisely what John 6, 37 is teaching. Let's pray together. Father, what an awesome thought it is to know that before the foundation of the earth, you knew us. 
that not only did you know us, not only did you foreknow us, but that you planned to send your son to save us, and that you controlled all of human history so that your redemption for us would be secured. Lord, uh, we just thank you for your amazing grace and for the love that you have shown through this plan of redemption that is so glorious. Father, help us to respond to this by just wanting to love you more because of your love and because you first loved us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.